So it's now broadcasting to everybody who's registered for Zoom. And for those that are joining us, uh, we're not officially getting started yet, but we are welcoming everybody to just slowly join in. Uh, I have put a welcome message on the right-hand side. If you're unfamiliar with Zoom, there's a little uh, you know, toolbar at the end or at the bottom where you can kind of click on the chat button and you pull up the chat blurb and it kind of just pulls it up to the right-hand side and that's where I'll be answering questions. You can also put them in the Q&A on Zoom. Um, and then right now I'm actually gonna live broadcast to the Facebook, Mass Cell Research Facebook page. Dr. Afrin is joining us. However, he's joining us via audio, not audio and video. So you'll see me and hear me, um, uh, but you'll also hear Dr. Afrin and I'll be answering the questions the same way. So you'll just you see his name and he'll be answering and you'll just have to be listening just like we all will. And um, we're going to be answering the Q&A just like everybody else um, has done before, whether it's either through Zoom or through Facebook. But once I link to Facebook, I'll go over that again. So thank you for everybody that's joining us. And I didn't have time to play with my, uh, my, my lighting. So it's all right. It's a different world right now, Dr. Afrin. <laughs> We're in uncharted territory. So welcome to everybody that's joining us. Welcome, Dr. Afrin. Thank you for being with us. For those that are just joining us on Facebook, thank you for joining us. Uh, I did put a little disclaimer on the Zoom uh, chat that said that Dr. Afrin will be joining us via audio, not audio and video. I'm here via video and audio to help answer questions. Please ask questions either in the Q&A or under the chat blurb uh, or the chat section in Zoom or under the live feed on the Mass Cell Research page. And uh, we're just gonna go ahead and get started. Dr. Afrin, are you ready? I'm ready. All right, so welcome again. Uh, thank you everybody for joining us. This is a live community, just Q&A with Dr. Afrin. This was planned a number of weeks ago, actually, for a while. It was been planned for a while, and it was actually in celebration of the four-year publishing anniversary of Dr. Afrin's very successful, incredibly helpful book um, that I helped him publish um, four years ago. So we were celebrating the anniversary, and uh, I asked Dr. Afrin if he would politely and kindly and generously do another Q community Q&A with us, and he did. And then everything with the COVID-19 virus broke out, and we weren't, I wasn't really sure exactly what to do. Um, I did want to do this, and, and I know Dr. Afrin did as well, but we didn't want to necessarily make it just specific to the, the virus, I, and I didn't necessarily want to just, it's an it's a uncharted territory we're all in right now, and it's scary, and we're all at home, and there's a lot of questions floating around, not just about MCAS, but about MCAS and the, the condition and MCAS and everything else and our risks, and, and I don't know that we have all those answers. So what we're going to do is, uh, as a medical disclaimer, first, this is for informational and educational purposes only. Uh, we will answer as many questions as we possibly can, and as, as Dr. Afrin is willing to answer, um, we will not specifically just focus on COVID-19 and MCAS. We're here to focus also on general MCAS questions and to just be available for the, uh, the community. But to also ask Dr. Afrin questions about you know, what he's doing and the work that he's doing, um, the work that he and Dr. Dempsey are doing, publications that have come out, um, and just different basic general MCAS questions. So I wanna make sure that we make it very, very clear this is for educational and informational purposes only. We will answer as many questions as possible. We might not be able to get to every one of them. Um, it's based upon Dr. Afrin's preference, his time and what he's willing to, to talk about. Um, and then also just know that we are not specifically doing this and this was not planned because of the situation globally that we're in. Um, this was prepared before, uh, but we understand that we're all at home 
And uh, globally, we're in uncharted territory and there's a lot of questions. So we'll do the best we can and answer what we can. Uh, I don't know that we have answers, um, but I will field them for Dr. Afrin and we'll go from there. And um, most, not most importantly, but just for those that don't know, I am Kendra Nielsen-Miles. I am the founder, owner, director of Mass Cell Research. I run the page, I run all the accounts, and it was associated with publishing of Dr. Afrin's book four years ago. And I'm also the executive director and founder of EDS Wellness. So I run a nonprofit, I do publishing, and uh, I have a degree in public health from University of Maryland. So that's where my background comes um, in all of this. And it all blends together and here's, that's why we're here. So welcome again. So do we wanna go ahead and get started, Dr. Afrin, and go just, Maybe start with just the basics of uh, happy anniversary. Thank you for publishing your book for all of us. Um, it's right here. It's available on Amazon. And for those that haven't read it or have, don't have it, it's available in print, hardback, and Kindle. Um, can you just, before we dive in, and we're going to actually hit it and quit the questions on COVID-19 up front, I think that's a really good question to just start with. But before that, um, do you mind telling us why you published your book, why you wanted to write your book four years ago? I just thought we had reached the point where we actually, in spite of how little we actually do understand about this disease, we nevertheless had reached the point where we could probably diagnose and helpfully treat the majority of people who truly have the disease. Uh, so the larger problem was just making people aware the disease exists and helping them identify some path uh, to take to get to the point of diagnosis and treatment. And I'm well aware of the challenges of that. Uh, again, given how little the medical profession presently is aware of this disease. So I thought that writing a book that might help um, guide and encourage patients uh, to pursue the matter uh, would be helpful. And from what I can tell from uh, the comments that I've gotten in the last four years, um, I think we've achieved the purpose and are continuing to achieve the purpose. I, I would have to agree as somebody that has worked side by side with you, both in not only to publishing your book, but also because of the work that I do in the community outside of the work with your book. Um, I absolutely think that we have, we've made a lot of headway. There's still so much more headway and work to be done for sure. Um, where do you think we are now in terms of MCAS and as a community in the medical world versus where we were before. I mean, and obviously there's still a lot of work to be done, but um, could you tell what maybe the biggest transition you've seen? Maybe that'll just keep it broad and also just simple in the last four years. Yeah, I, I, I think there are more doctors uh, who have at least heard of the condition. Um, I, I, I don't know that, um, we've made 
what I would consider to be significant gains yet in the number of doctors who are truly familiar with it or who believe it exists, but that, that'll come in time. At least we're making gains in the number of doctors and other healthcare professionals who have heard of it. And we're certainly making gains um, in the number of uh, people, uh, you know, patients or prospective patients uh, who have heard of it and are coming to suspect it might be at the root of their chronic, uh, mysterious unwellness. Uh, so again, we're accomplishing the goal. The, the primary goal is awareness. If, if you don't even have that, it's hard to accomplish anything more. That's, that's for sure. So I think because we are, we are getting, we have several really great broad MCAS questions and I want to make sure that we can answer them as many as possible. Obviously, they're obviously complex and it takes time to answer them. But in the midst of the situation that we're in right now, is there anything that we know about COVID-19 and MCAS? Uh, do we know anything about COVID-19 and MCAS specifically? The answer to that is a very clear no. Uh, we know nothing about COVID-19 and MCAS because fundamentally there have been no studies of um, COVID-19 uh, in the context of MCAS. And that's not all that surprising given that there are virtually no studies of MCAS at all. Um, and you know, now is not the time or the place to discuss why that is. Again, that's another thing that'll get fixed in time. But if there's so little study of MCAS just in normal times, um, then one certainly could not expect any intensified study of the matter uh, during these extraordinary times. Uh, however, we do know a little bit about COVID-19 and mast cells, um, you know, in, in, independent of mast cell activation syndrome or, or other mast cell diseases, we do know that the virus uh, brings about activation of mast cells, but frankly, that's not particularly surprising because uh, just about any infection uh, can activate mast cells. That, that's kind of expected. I mean, mast cells are, they, they should activate uh, when the body is being assaulted by any infection. Um, so, um, you know, beyond that basic fact that mast cells do activate um, when uh, the coronavirus, uh, when COVID-19 is in the body, um, we, we really don't know anything else. Can we speculate that people who have mast cell dysfunction, in other words, people with various mast cell disorders, including MCAS, might they have 
more difficult time um, dealing with the infection uh, because of abnormally excessive production and release of various mast cell mediators in response to the infection. Um, sure, we can speculate that, but fundamentally we have no data uh, to prove it. And I think we need to be careful uh, to not assume uh, that mast cell activation syndrome patients are necessarily more susceptible either to acquiring the infection. Um, I mean, all the evidence to date suggests the virus, this particular virus, uh, is extraordinarily contagious. There's a very high infectivity rate even in perfectly healthy people. Uh, so it kind of seems unlikely that um, the uh, contagiousness of the virus uh, in a mast cell uh, disorder patient would be all that significantly greater than in anybody else. Uh, it, it's just fundamentally a very, very infective uh, virus. Um, and, and we have to separate the issue of how likely it is to get the infection, which is highly likely if you come in contact um, or in the proximity of somebody who, who does have it. You have to separate that notion from uh, what an infected person's course with the disease is going to be. And I think it's pretty clear at this point that although fortunately most people have a relatively modest course with the disease, there sure are those who have a very difficult course, unfortunately, sometimes even fatal course with the disease. And a lot of that fatality seems to be coming about from massive amounts of inflammation um, in those patients. Um, and again, we can speculate about how much, uh, how involved mast cells are in producing that, um, inflammatory storm. Uh, we can speculate, speculate about how involved normal mast cells are. We can speculate about how involved abnormal mast cells are, but Fundamentally, it, it's speculation at this point, and that's not going to serve anybody's best interests. No, and I think that also just understanding the natural biology and, and nature that mast cells were made to do to protect us and their involvement naturally in any kind of infection that we might have is important to also understand. So the term mast cells and relation to this condition or this COVID-19 doesn't necessarily mean you know, it, it doesn't necessarily pertain specifically to MCAS patients only. It's talking about maybe just their biological involvement. Is that, is that, am I mistaken by the way that you're interpreting what you're saying? That it's just the normal biology of pathophysiology, the way they're supposed to work in our bodies and how they might be responding to this condition or not, or anything else because of just what they're supposed to do. Right. Uh, again, it, mast cells are an integral part 
of the immune system. They are supposed to uh, activate when the body is under assault, um, whether that's an infective assault or, or any other kind of assault like trauma. Um, so we, we expect activation of mast cells in an infection. And then the only question beyond that becomes, is the uh, manner of the activation, is the degree of activation, is it going to be normal and therefore helpful toward uh, us uh, combating and resolving the threat, uh, the assault, or is it going to be abnormal? And uh, obviously, <laughs> abnormal responses can be problematic. Yeah. Well, we have some great just general MCAS questions. Um, some are, you know, they're asking more about COVID-19, but I think we can take them and make them a little bit more broad. So if somebody has to take steroids every day, uh, and you can let me know if you're comfortable answering this or if you don't know, of course. Um, if somebody takes steroids every day because they have MCAS, and when they're sick, they have to take a higher dose. Um, somebody read that the COVID-19 and the steroids are not good. Um, I haven't read such any information. I don't know if you can say that. Obviously, we can't give personal advice and we can't say anything to pers somebody's personal case. But um, if somebody has to take a steroids because they have MCAS and they may have to take more, is there some kind of contraindication for this condition that, some, that has been published? Maybe for anybody, not necessarily for MCAS patients, but just for in the general public. I don't know how to provide guidance uh, for that at this point. Um, there, there just haven't been any studies, that, not that I've seen anyway, that help clarify that. On the one hand, chronic use of steroids very clearly increases a person's susceptibility to infection. But again, I don't know that that's necessarily... Uh, uh, a relevant consideration given a virus that is just so virulent, so infective, even at baseline. Um, I, I think you could even potentially look at it the other way. I mean, steroids are great anti-inflammatory treatments. And if the problem if the principal problem that the patients who are having the more difficult times with COVID-19, uh, if the principal problem they're having is with excessive inflammatory responses uh, by the inflammatory systems in the body, uh, then perhaps being on steroids might actually, uh, you know, re re reduce the intensity of uh, their course with the virus. I guess that's possible. Right. Um, I, I think each person is, each patient is gonna be different with this and maybe in time there will be studies to answer a question like that, but I wouldn't expect such studies anytime soon. Fair enough. Um, a question about chromium sodium nebulizer solution, helping with general lung issues including any virus issues. Do you think chromium sodium nebulizing solution helps with just general lung issues, let's just say related to MCAS and just even any virus? 
I think chromalin um, is a useful drug in helping to settle down mast cell activation in some patients. Um, I think one of the problems with chromalin is that um, it doesn't, uh, sort of in contrast to most other drugs that get used to try to settle down mast cell activation, chromalin does not get absorbed from the surface to which you apply it. So if you take it by nebulizer, it may help settle down the activation of mast cells in the lungs and in the, the respiratory tract, but it's not gonna do a whole lot to settle down mast cells anywhere else in the body. And certainly a viral infection is gonna be a systemic infection. So although nebulized chromalin could be helpful. Um, I would think that um, systemic uh, medications for helping to settle down mast cell activation might even be more attractive um, in a situation where there is just excessive inflammation coming about due to abnormal response by dysfunctional mast cells to a viral infection. Well, another question that's along those same lines is that if you're talking about normal mast cell MCAS and medications, are there any that could contribute or encourage a cytokine storm like NSAIDs can? Are there other medications that people may or may not use for MCAS that could potentially contribute or encourage a cytokine storm? Well, like well there are a couple of different ways to, to come about trying to answer that, a couple of different angles. From one angle, you can talk about the drugs themselves. And uh, yes, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories just naturally are triggers in a minority of the mast cell activation patient population. Uh, narcotics uh, often are triggers. Certainly some are much worse in that regard than others. Um, there are certain antibiotics, certain anesthetics, which can be triggers in various mast cell patients. Alcohol and smoke, for that matter, often are potent triggers in a lot of different mast cell patients. Uh, even chromalin that we were talking about uh, a short while ago. Um, in a minority of mast cell patients, there can be an initial uh, flaring of mast cell activation in the first few days that the uh, patient is being exposed to uh, chromalin. Um, uh, so that's one way to look at it. Um, a second way to look at it is just from the fact that dysfunctional mast cells just fundamentally have potential depending on the particular manner in which they are abnormal. They, they have potential to react to virtually anything. So a mast cell patient could react to any drug. 
And I think a third uh, important angle to consider on this um, is that patients could potentially react to any of what we call the excipients, the fillers, the binders, the dyes, the preservatives, and so forth, that almost inescapably are mixed in with the various formulations uh, we take of, of the various drugs that we've been prescribed. And in fact, uh, it's been my experience that in the great majority of situations where a mast cell patient is newly trying some medication product and pretty quickly uh, out of the starting gate starts having an adverse reaction uh, to that product, and particularly in the scenario where the drug in that product ordinarily is a pretty well-tolerated drug, that's exactly the scenario where it becomes highly likely that what's actually driving uh, the, the adverse reaction to the product is not a reaction by the patient's dysfunctional mast cells to the drug in that product, but rather a reaction by those mast cells to one or more of the excipients uh, in that product. So it becomes important in that case, uh, in that situation, to not necessarily give up on the drug, especially if it's a drug that the patient's doctors think will be important for treating the patient. The drug may wind up being wonderfully helpful if one can just divorce it from the triggers. I think it's uh, difficult many times for patients and their doctors to appreciate without yet having seen it with their own eyes or, or experienced it, to, to, to understand just how vigorously um, uh, uh, mast cells can activate, what, what a storm of activation a mast cell patient can have in response to exposure to even a trace amount of some excipient that happens to be a trigger in that particular patient. And it is a, a very different profile from one patient to the next as to what's a trigger and what's not. But uh, boy, can these reactions be uh, vigorous. So I think there are a lot of different angles to look at that. that that's, I, I know it's a simple question, but it sure is not a simple uh, answer. No, for sure. Um, there is somebody asked about, um, let me uh, get back to it. Uh, somebody asked about MCAS contributing to stents. Let me just make sure I'm reading it properly. Hold on one second. If you wouldn't mind, I'm just trying to get back to it um, so that I can make sure that I read it and answer, ask the question as, as best as clear as possible. Um, there was a really great question about stents and MCAS contributing to blockage. So let me just, I'll read it um, directly. Let's see if I can go back to it. If not, I'll, I'll find it and I'll, I'll go next to the next one. Well, I can understand what the question would be about if you want me to take a stab. Uh, yes, stents and that. MCAS blockage of stents. Right. Well, I, I think uh, 
what the question probably uh, is more or less asking is whether there is a greater risk of complications developing um, after placement of an arterial stent um, at a point of arterial uh, narrowing or blockage or obstruction in a patient with mast cell activation syndrome compared to somebody who doesn't have uh, mast cell activation. And I, I think uh, the, the, that question is a fairly easy one to answer from, again, the perspective that dysfunctional mast cells have the potential to react to virtually anything, uh, then yes, if one goes placing a foreign substance, uh, the, the stent and whatever materials it's made out of, any metals, any plastics, some stents even contain um, loads of various drugs in them. And if you place that uh, in the body, uh, and if Unfortunately, that patient's mast cells uh, just happen to be triggered by any of the materials in that stent, then yes, <laughs> that patient's uh, mast cell activation situation is going to be worsened uh, by that stent. And unfortunately, um, many of the stents that get placed in modern medicine are not removable. There are some stents that can be removed, but um, uh, probably more of the stents that get placed are not removable than, than the removable stents. And I have actually seen uh, some patients who unfortunately have had um, unremovable uh, stents place with it with the best of intentions um, and yet unfortunately they come to suffer even more worsening of their disease um, and uh, you, you know w this kind of begs discussion of or, or review that uh, probably Step one in managing this very complex disease in any patient with the disease is to identify the patient's triggers as precisely as possible and then do one's best to avoid them for the simple reason that it's actually kind of hard to, um, uh, to, to uh, achieve uh, sustained good control over mast cell uh, over dysfunctional mast cells when the patient is simultaneously ingesting or otherwise being exposed to a trigger uh, so if one then goes placing into the patient's body a trigger that is unremovable uh, it then becomes very difficult at that point to find 
any other treatments which will successfully uh, control uh, the, the reaction of the patient's uh, dysfunctional mast cells against that material that's been placed in their body. So that can be an extremely difficult situation to manage uh, at that point. Please understand too, I am not saying that stents should not be used in mast cell patients. It is a different situation in every patient and the risks and the competing priorities for managing different problems are going to be different in each patient. Uh, it's just that the risk assessment and therefore ultimately the final decision about whether to place a stent in any given patient with mast cell disease, it's just got to be a very careful and thoughtful risk assessment process that absolutely needs to take the patient's mast cell disease into consideration, especially any history that the patient has of prior exposure to any of the materials in that stent. Yep. Um, I would assume that that stents, what about VP shunts? I assume it's the same. It's the same issue, for, right? It's the same issue. It's a foreign device. It's foreign substances that are being embedded in the patient's body, sometimes permanently, sometimes only semi-permanently, but um, either way, if it's material that is a trigger for the patient's dysfunctional mast cells, one would be kind of naive to not expect uh, trouble to result. Right, unfortunately, and it's so hard because you don't know what you're going to react to, and there's a lot of surgical procedures that are warranted and that patients need. Well, this is why history can be so important. For example, some patients learn uh, from prior operations that certain types of suture uh, are just not tolerated by them. And by, by trial and uh, you know, trial of fire, so to speak. They learn what they can tolerate and what they cannot tolerate, whether it's through surgeries or dental procedures. They learn about sutures, other materials, uh, anesthetics, uh, antibiotics, and so forth. And I think it's uh, probably the most important uh, way that a mast cell patient undergoing a, uh, or, or scheduled to undergo a procedure in which something may be implanted, uh, the best way to try to protect themselves is to just have a thoughtful preoperative cons consultation with the surgeon and with the anesthesiologist to review uh, what their prior experiences with procedures have been and try to learn as much as possible from the prior experiences. If, if something has worked well in the past, then that's a good guide for the future. And kind of similarly, if something has not worked well in the past, 
that's a pretty good guide for the future too. For sure. I know I saw that a lot when working in the operating room and when I was um, you know, with my medical device company that I ran that um, with surgical glue too, even though it was topical, it was uh, very interesting. And it was patients some kind sometimes knew. I mean, they knew what they previously, if you really looked at their history, if the doctor had, they could kind of identify that they wouldn't do so well with certain sutures or even surgical glues. And, and that was just externally and not just internally. So um, it can be difficult to uh, sometimes to dig up these old records uh, to identify the specifics of the materials that were used, uh, the, the materials, the anesthetics and so forth that were used in the past. But if ever there were a disease for which the phrase, the, the, the devil is in the details, uh, applies to, it's this disease. And knowing these details about what a patient has previously been exposed to and what the outcome of those exposures have been, it, it's uh, essential for um, helping the patient be as successful as possible with future uh, uh, procedures. Wouldn't that go along also with like just weird reactions and weird just you know things that people have had in the past or would that would it be specific to just surgery and surgical outcomes? Oh no I think I think you're exactly right now to be clear you know I've generally observed again there are always exceptions but I've generally observed that over time as a mast cell patient comes to gain better control over their disease uh, many of them actually do come to regain some measure of tolerance for things which previously had become intolerable. But that's over time. To begin with, a mast cell patient serves himself, himself or herself best uh, by paying an awful lot of attention to step one. Identify your triggers as best you can and do your best to avoid them. Like me not going on horses anymore that scare the death out of me and run away and cause shingles to all of a sudden come out of the blue. <laughs> I just I laugh at like, you get scared to death. Sometimes these really crazy things happen, um, like hives and shingles coming out. But that's, I look at my medical well, history and that was personal for me. We, and I think, yeah. We, we know that physical stressors and psychological or emotional stressors uh, either physical or psychological stress, either way, can uh, be a potent trigger of sure. mast cell activation. Could we go back to the medications and the experience in the medications? Could those cause or encourage a cytokine storm? Uh, again, unless you're in one of those categories that I previously mentioned, for example, the minority of uh, or a relatively small minority of, of mast cell activation patients who just naturally are triggered by non-steroidal anti-inflammatories or, or those uh, or, or the minority of mast cell patients who just naturally have some flaring of activation in the first few days of being exposed to chromalin. Um, yes, those are the people who 
could have trouble um, with certain drugs independent of any excipient issues. And I will also say personally too, and I know that I try to share this as much as possible because I am an MCAS patient as well, that for whatever reason, even though it seems so simple, that I couldn't take the generic of chromium sodium. I have to take just gastrocrotin, the brand, even though it just seems so simple and it's in a plastic vial and it's just liquid. But um, do you have a lot of experience with that? Is that something to also make sure that we consider? Because if we don't know, we don't think that there's much in there, but it could be the plastics, am I right? Uh, you're exactly right. You know, Cromlin, uh, at least in the formulations available in the U.S., where most of them are liquid formulations uh, compared to other countries where it's more typically provided as a uh, solid or powdered uh, drug in a, in a capsule. But here in the U.S., virtually every formulation is a liquid. Um, and in particular, if you look at the official manufacturer's ingredient lists for uh, virtually all of the um, uh, sterile, single-use vials um, that are on the market for um, oral chromalin and nebulized chromalin, the official manufacturer's ingredient list for all those different formulations lists only two ingredients, uh, the, the same two ingredients for every formulation, chromalin and sterile water, and, that, and that's it. And yet I long ago lost count of the number of mast cell patients I've seen who came back a few weeks after trying their initial formulation of, say, oral chromalin, and they told me, they were quick to tell me, how bad an experience it was. And, and this wasn't just the initial flaring in response to exposure to the drug that we would expect to settle down after a few days, but this was um, a, a bad reaction that happened even with a tiny dose that just kept going on and on and on. And they told me it was a horrible drug. They never want to try it again. And my response, I, I've learned over time that my response to that should be, well, hold on a second. Chromalin really shouldn't behave that way. So it's more likely you're reacting to some excipient that is present in the product, even if the manufacturer is not aware of the presence of that contaminating excipient and therefore doesn't have it listed on the ingredient label. So with those patients, we try to persuade them to at least give a cautious try to at least one or two other formulations. And in my experience, and I've not had a chance to publish this yet, but in my experience, about 90% of the patients who go on to uh, try an alternative formulation come back to me just a month after that, and they tell me chromalin's the greatest drug since sliced bread. And they tell me they could tell right from the very first dose that it was a different drug. And of course, the irony is it's exactly the same drug. Chromalin is chromalin is chromalin is chromalin. You can't change even one atom in the chromalin molecule without it no longer being chromalin and not being able to do what chromalin does. So the chromalin in all these products is absolutely identical. 
and therefore there has to be something else in the poorly tolerated formulation that is not in the well-tolerated formulation. And whatever that is, I'm not saying it's a trigger in every patient uh, with mast cell disease, but clearly there are some patients in whom these trace contaminants, whatever they are, uh, there are some patients in whom they are very vigorous triggers. I've even had some patients tell me they can taste a difference between the different products, uh, between the different formulations. And if the two formulations have exactly the same official manufacturer's ingredient list, and yet the patient can taste a difference between them, then it's obviously the case. There is something in the poorly tolerated formulation that is not in the well-tolerated formulation. And the question then becomes, what is it? And you're right, it might be some microparticulate plastic dust or off-gassing from the manufacturing of the plastic comprising the vial into which the, the chromalin fluid has been loaded. Or maybe it's a trace contaminant in the water supply in right. um, that particular pharmaceutical manufacturing plant's uh, municipal water supply. Uh, or maybe it's just a contaminating chemical byproduct of the series of organic chemistry steps, uh, reactions that are needed to make chromalin. I mean, nobody knows because fundamentally the research has not yet been done. But there's something going on with these chromalin formulations, and in time we'll figure it out. But until then, I think everybody just needs to be aware that there are these issues and not to give up on any medication and on any drug that you're initially trying, whether it's chromalin or any other drug, not to necessarily give up on the drug just because the first formulation that you or your pharmacist randomly grabbed off the shelf for you to try caused a problem in you. And I have to say also that working with maybe a local pharmacy that's willing to help you, um, not saying all smaller pharmacies or their, their bigger ones aren't great, but I know that one of my best successes with this and even just with other products I haven't tolerated that doesn't make any sense is that I found um, both when I was diagnosed and also now after we moved, just a local smaller pharmacy that has great pharmacists that are open to willing to learn and help and uh, order things and help me work through things. And they have been saving graces for me in many ways, whether it's because I need to get something that's harder, um, they get it quickly for me, they know when I need to order it. Um, and this is particularly has been happened also with chromo and sodium too, but they're also willing to like, look at all the ingredient lists to help me try to identify, you know, what's in the excipient. It also happened with one of our kids recently that Seamus was on, he, he had a, he was on amoxicillin for strep, which he's been on 15,000 times. And, uh, he ended up having this incredible reaction that actually just, it was slow. It wasn't immediate. And it was over time. He ended up getting completely red, inflamed hands and feet and, um, and painful and, and red and stinging. And, and it wasn't immediate. And um, it was the pharmacist that we've been working with that helped figure it out for us. So um, I think that's, 
that's also really important. I think a lot of people think local smaller pharmacies might not have as much capacity or ability, but they've been really a great saving grace for me personally. Do you have anything in, to say to that? In my experience, it's not so much the size of the institution that a healthcare practitioner is working at that's the principal factor in how helpful that practitioner is going to be. It's the willingness. Uh, It's the character. It's the willingness of that practitioner, that individual practitioner to learn about this condition and their willingness to at least try uh, to help the patient with the individual problems that that patient is having. I know a number of uh, very large pharmacies uh, serving a, a large po- a large populations of mast cell patients nationwide uh, that serve those patients very well. And I also know of a number of tiny pharmacies where there's you know just one particular pharmacist that is just key at those small pharmacies to helping uh, the patients who patronize that pharmacy. Uh, you, you could say the same with, with doctors, uh, pharmacists, nurses, a- any type of healthcare practitioner. Are they willing to learn? And are they willing to at least try? And if not, okay. Uh, you're not going to get anywhere by forcing them or trying to force them. Just courteously step around them and move on. Find somebody else who's going to be willing to learn and willing to at least try. So along those lines of reacting to kind of anything, including medications, if you're reacting to kind of anything that you're putting in your mouth, this is a question off Zoom, where do you start? Are the symptoms, do the symptoms always appear immediately that you should, are there ones that you should watch for right away or are there over several hours? And I think we kind of just talked about that, that they can be over time too. But what do you do if you feel like you're reacting to everything that you put in your mouth, including medications or foods or whatever it may be. I I think that's actually, um, uh, in some ways can actually make things easier because in such situations, uh, it actually becomes even more likely that there are particular excipients especially some of the much more commonly used excipients. Uh, For example, uh, microcrystalline cellulose or lactose monohydrate or magnesium stearate. Um, That, you know, some of these excipients get used in, uh, get incorporated into thousands of medication products. Um, and, And so... Uh, I, I counsel my patients that actually uh, when they have an adverse reaction to a medication product, um, uh, they, they should stop using the product. Don't give up on the drug, but, but stop using that particular formulation and work with the pharmacist. Look at the uh, full ingredient list for that formulation and try one's best to identify the particular ingredient uh, 
the particular excipient that's likely the trigger. And in particular, if a patient has adversely reacted to multiple medication products, then that's just an absolutely golden opportunity to work with the pharmacist, pull the full ingredient lists to the multiple different products you've had an adverse reaction to, especially if you have had similar adverse reactions to the different products, line up their ingredient list and say, what the heck do these products have in common? Because they're probably not gonna have the drug in common, but they could easily have some particular excipient in common. And once you have that realization, it then becomes possible to work the pharmacist and, if necessary, the doctor to switch to alternative formulations of the medications that are in the patient's regimen to scrub that suspected triggering excipient uh, out of the patient's regimen. And some patients come back to me um, after having gone through that exercise and having identified that there really are certain excipients that are triggers for them. And then they go to the trouble of scrubbing all that material out of the regimen. And then they follow up with me and tell me they're already 75% better just for having gotten rid of the triggers in the regimen. And they haven't even started yet on even the first drugs actually targeting the mast cells yet, like antihistamines. And it just really underscores the potency that some of these um, excipients have, even at trace uh, levels, just the, the, the sheer potency they have for triggering the activation of these mast cells. Now, there are some very occasional mast cell patients um, who are so extraordinarily reactive to virtually everything that it does become very difficult to identify particular triggers and um, and and uh, to figure out a way to get any controlling drugs into them without causing more trouble. And in those fairly, uh, fortunately, fairly few uh, patients, there still are some uh, techniques uh, that might be helpful in them. Uh, you're aware, Kendra, that uh, we have occasionally found a continuous infusion of preservative-free diphenhydramine or Benadryl to be helpful in some of these extremely reactive patients. There are other patients in whom certain behavioral retraining uh, programs uh, prove to be helpful with these extreme degrees of environmental and food reactivities, uh, uh, programs such as the Dynamic Neural Retraining System or DNRS. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, so, so there, there are some approaches that even can be taken with the most extreme of these patients. Obviously we can't guarantee success in anybody. I mean, no, no doctor can ever guarantee any patient success in, in anything, but, 
um, but nevertheless, uh, even with the most challenging mast cell patients, there usually are still some ways that a creatively thinking um, clinician can help that patient uh, start to bring the disease under better control. Yeah, I, and speaking of which, if there is somebody that's new to an MCAS diagnosis or they might not know if they have it, and there's a, this is actually one question's on Zoom and one is on Facebook under this live stream. They're both kind of related. Um, how do you know if you have MCAS? Or if you have been kind of given a, an, an assumed diagnosis of MCAS um, based upon somebody being willing to you know, read your book and understand kind of looking at the history, what, where does somebody go? How do they know if they have you know, MCAS versus if they've already been diagnosed with POTS? I know we can have both, um, but maybe they're trying to understand if they have one or the other, if maybe POTS is caused by something else. Um, and then also if they are new to the diagnosis, maybe their doctor has identified it, what kind of, is there anything out there that can help providers feel comfortable to start treating patients. So maybe that they've identified that they are MCAS patients, but they don't know how to treat them um, or even start. Well, so it's twofold. Gosh, One, that, how do you know if you might yeah, have the, these are two very broad questions? And you know, given that we're already a little past eight o'clock already, I, I think we may need to wrap it up with these questions. I'll. Let's start with the first one. Um, first of all, I think we need to acknowledge uh, that there, the, the best way to be confident that one ha in, in truth has MCAS and not to be guessing about it is to be sure that one has met the peer-reviewed published diagnostic uh, criteria for this disease, or I should say has met the criteria that have been published in any of the published proposals for diagnostic criteria for this disease, because we do have to recognize that at present there is not yet a, uh, any accepted global uh, consensus on the diagnostic criteria for this disease. At present, there are principally, uh, again, this gets complicated, but there principally are two different proposals for diagnostic criteria for this disease in the peer-reviewed literature. And there are many points they share in common, but also some important points they differ on. And I'm not sure that it really matters for the individual patient uh, by which proposed um, set of diagnostic criteria they happen to get diagnosed by. But fundamentally, uh, having a, a diagnosis that uh, checks all the check boxes in either of these uh, proposed sets of diagnostic criteria that's the best way you can be sure you have a diagnosis. Now, are there places in the world where it simply is not possible to access um, the laboratory testing um, that these different proposals uh, require 
to be able to establish a definitive diagnosis? Yes, there, there are many places in the world where that testing is simply not accessible. And clinicians in those areas of the world have little choice but to make uh, a presumptive or what we would call a clinical diagnosis. You, you do the best you can. Uh, but certainly if you live in an area of the world that does have access to the testing, then um, pursuing the testing would be by far the best way to be, uh, to become confident uh, that this is the correct diagnosis. Um, the second question, where to go with regard to treatment? Um, uh, I, I would think that, uh, again, if it's kind of obvious, I, I guess, that if you have uh, the opportunity to put yourself in the hands of a clinician who is familiar with treating the disease, that would be best. But if you don't, then it would be best to put, your in, self, put yourself in the hands of a clinician who is at least willing to learn about how to manage this disease. And if that physician is willing to learn, then he is quickly going to find that there are articles um, readily available in the medical literature uh, that describe a great many uh, valid approaches, uh, valid and often successful approaches in controlling various aspects of the disease. Unfortunately, at this very early point in our scientific understanding of the disease, we really don't have any methods at all yet for reliably predicting which of these many different treatments that have been found helpful in various patients will be most likely to help the individual patient. So um, it does become uh, to a great extent a matter of trial and error, but as long as both the patient and the doctor, the treating doctor are sufficiently patient and persistent and methodical about stepping through the trials of these different treatments, then at least in my experience, the odds are fairly good that uh, patients will actually eventually, I mean, some sooner, others later, but eventually identify some mast cell targeted treatment cocktail, highly unique to the individual patient, um, that um, actually gets the patient to the goal of feeling significantly better than the pre-treatment baseline the majority of the time. Uh, but it, there, there's just no denying the, the patience uh, and the persistence that this takes at present. It'll get better in the future as we better understand the science and the disease and we can better understand the particular variant of the disease that a given patient has. And from that information, we'll eventually be able to predict which drugs are most likely gonna help that patient. But frankly, I suspect those times are decades away.
Yeah. That's uh, unfortunate. I know it's after eight o'clock, Dr. Afrin. Would you, are you comfortable answering maybe one more or just to update on current research or anything? Or are you, do you have to go? I want to be mindful of your time and we appreciate it. And you're very generous to give your time and, and answer as many questions as possible. Are you well, I, I think it's um, probably best at this point to, to summarize and just say, um, Research continues to be very slow going. Uh, fundamentally, uh, the, 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 the large majority of the medical profession uh, and therefore the large majorities of all the ancillary professions, uh, like the pharmaceutical industry, for example, still have utterly no awareness at all of what is turning out to be a very prevalent disease. And without that awareness, of course, nobody is seeing any imperative for devoting any resources toward research in this area. So research uh, the world over is very slow in this area. And yet at the same time, there are... Uh, a few projects moving forward uh, here and there. And I think uh, the best we can all do is just, um, you know, continue to support interests in research as best we all can in our own ways and keep an eye on the emerging literature. Um, there will, uh, you know, I, I've had some papers come out in the last few months. I've got some more coming out in the coming weeks and months. Uh, plenty of other uh, investigators in this area um, also are making uh, progress as each of us can with our presently very limited resources. Uh, we appreciate all the patients' um, understanding of the, the challenges that the professionals are, are having in this area at this time. Better, better times ahead, but keep in mind, uh, we're only about a decade since the very first awareness of this. And in truth, that's just the blink of an eye. Um, so um, there, there will continue to be a lot of challenges ahead. But as I said at the beginning of this uh, session here, Kendra, fortunately, even with as little as we do know, it's nevertheless enough to be able to help most of the people who have this illness. And the larger issue really is just awareness. Uh, so thank you for what you've been doing to help with that. And yeah. I hope everybody who's listening can uh, help in their own way too. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dr. Afrin. I appreciate your time. I will also say that I, I, I have been working on brochures and cast brochures behind the scenes as Dr. Afrin knows. So hopefully those will come out soon. And uh, we just appreciate your availability and being here to celebrate your four year anniversary of your book and uh, for you always being willing to answer our questions and, and provide questions and being available for our providers if they need, if they have questions. So thank you 
so much for, for not just your book, but for your time and, and your generosity and just trying to help as many people as possible. Um, we really appreciate it. We apologize if we couldn't get to everybody's questions tonight. Um, I know that we are in uncharted territory as a global community also. I know your office had to close, Dr. Afrin. Um, you know, you and Dr. Dempsey had to close your office. You're in one of the hotbeds. Yeah, to be clear, to be clear, the office has closed, oh. not not the practice. Right. The the practice remains open, and we continue to see, so to speak, our patients uh, via telephone and whatnot. Uh, you know, via remote means, um, and we have unfortunately had to temporarily defer seeing new patients because those patients for the initial consultation, it absolutely does require a face-to-face in-person consultation. Uh, but for all of our existing patients, our practice very much remains open and we're happy to continue uh, seeing, so to speak, those patients as they desire. Well, thank you. I'm glad that you clarified that because, uh, you know, we're all having to sacrifice and it's a very, you know, when you have a condition like this, it's very scary. And especially if you're waiting to see somebody, a provider like you or Dr. Dempsey, I know Dr. Dempsey has done her own uh, episodes and a Facebook live where she shared a lot and talked a lot about COVID-19 and it's just a really uncharted territory for all of us right now. I remember learning about it in public health and in, in school. But, you know, to be here and actually be in this, you know, as a global community and not just as a family dealing with it, it's just, it's crazy. And uh, we just appreciate what you're doing and what you have done and you're being still willing to see patients however you can, both you and Dr. Dempsey. And um, thank you for your time tonight. And we will post the edited recording. The Facebook live recording will always remain on Facebook, on the Facebook page, but I will also share the, um, and with Dr. Afrin's permission, which she already gave me the edited recording. Um, from Zoom and the audio recording. So thank you again, Dr. Afrin. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Have a good night.